Hello, and welcome to Where Am I To Go podcast. Today, I am at my absolute number one favorite museum that I have ever been to. I feel so fortunate that uh, Gil, the founder of the museum, has been willing to sit down and talk with me. We're not really going to do a walkthrough on this museum because we couldn't even begin to do the museum justice if we had two or three or maybe even four or five hours to sit down and talk with Gil. So we're just going to kind of hit some highlights and uh, see where this goes. Uh, This museum has a little bit of everything. The sign out front says it is the Smithsonian of the West. And I can honestly say that if you don't have something that brings back childhood memories or uh, some sort of nostalgia in your life or just you learned something and you are at this museum, you are not breathing. This museum is absolutely unbelievable and so full of stuff that... uh, A person could spend hours and days and and I'm sure years and years collecting. (laughs) So welcome, Gil. I appreciate you taking your time today and talking to me about your museum. And uh, welcome to Where Am I To Go podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So how long have you been collecting this stuff? Over 70 years as far as collecting. Uh, I'll be 80 next week, so... (laughs) <laughs> and so, you're, you're still here every day yeah yeah when i was about three and a half years old i found an arrowhead on a beach down here on flathead lake and it intrigued me and i, I don't know the art form the design whatever i didn't know what, even know what it was i showed it to my mother and she said oh that's an indian arrowhead I need to save that i've been saving ever since and uh anyhow uh it is a group from it got out of hand. <laughs> <laughs> is that what it is? It got out of hand. Yeah, yeah. Well, usually I, I collected anything I could think of. I mean, when I was about ten years old, my grandmother, one grandmother, lived about three, uh, two miles away from where I grew up, gave me a thirty-eight snub-nosed pistol. It'd be called a Saturday night Saturday night special by some people, but. Uh, I even took it to school and showed my friends. I didn't. We didn't shoot anybody back then. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, and, and you were able to take guns to school uh, and, back in the day. And then I, you know, I'd bought a bayonet out of the out of the secondhand store out out in Seattle when we were out visiting there, and and uh, and my other grandmother gave me a ninety-five Winchester rifle, and I probably wore that action out. This this shooting dry fire and things. So, you know, I already had guns as part of my collection before I was even a teenager. So never shot anybody. Well, that's good. Well, you know, we had the Ten Commandments back then, and it says I shall not kill. And that probably saved a lot of my classmates that bullied me. (laughs) (laughs) Truthfully, I mean, you know, I... Anyhow, uh, you know, it... uh, and I collected cars and tractors and neat stuff, but it was just a collection. It didn't really 
didn't really fit a real purpose. Right. Other than there's a collection. Maybe bragging rights, but there's always somebody else that had better collection than you did, so I didn't, that wasn't much, but uh, so anyhow, jumping way ahead after uh, my service in military, military policeman, I was a year at West Point for a year, and a lot of history there, and then two years in Germany, and I went over to, uh, I was stationed at Frankfurt, but I took a leave and I went up to Berlin when the wall was still up. And the difference in be between the free sector of West Berlin and uh, enslaved communist-controlled sector of East Berlin was like black and white, night and day. Now, very depressing. And so, <clears throat> after I got out of the service, I got married, started a family, and I got to thinking about that, you know. The Vietnam riots and protests that started up about that time, people criticizing America. Uh, you know, America's better than that. And so so I began seeing seeing things that that our constitution guaranteed free enterprise and well how come we lead the world in inventions? It was because of free enterprise. People could think of a better idea. So what there's a phrase was build a better mousetrap and the world will be to pass your door. So, so we got over a hundred different mousetraps. I was gonna say that's a pretty neat display. <laughs> One of them cost me dearly. I hate to tell you what I paid on eBay for that bugger, but it was very unique, very different from the others that I had. And I bought that one and that put me over the hundred mark. I had a couple other more common ones, but still different since then. But I, I don't go on internet anymore to buy mousetraps. I figured a hundred's enough. <laughs> but it tells the story of free enterprise. Build a better mousetrap and the world will be the past your door. Why do you think we got all the different, I don't care what you call it, cars, trucks, can openers, hundreds, thousands of different kinds of things. Just like your, your, just like your tape recorder or whatever you, device or whatever you call them. I mean, people are always thinking up new ideas. They can in a free country, you know? right? And uh, if they can profit from their motives, but if the government comes in and slaps a bunch of controls and licenses and taxes and bureaucrats looking over your shoulder, uh, you're gonna say, well, shoot, why should I try so hard? I'll just close down my factory or maybe I'll move it overseas where there's not all these government controls. So America, it's a pro-American museum. We don't, we don't, uh, we're not embarrassed about it. We're proud of America. Although we do show some dark sides in America in some of the displays and, and uh, that's history. We don't tear down statues. We don't, we don't, uh, destroy things because they were a part of the dark side. We, we have overcome first to, the, to a large extent. There's a few little, little places here and there that might still harbor racism or some other problem, but, but for the most part, America has overcome and helped every nation on earth when you think about it. We go, after World War II, we could have enslaved the Japanese or the Germans. But we didn't. We helped rebuild their countries and look at them today, you know. Uh, <clears throat> very, uh, very productive society and a free society, you know. Right. So, so that's what a lot of the museum teaches about 
even the vehicles represent freedom of travel. I don't care whether it's a bicycle or, or a big caterpillar or steam engine outside or antique motorcycles. Every everyone in America, you know, has a right of free travel, but along with that comes a responsibility. You know, if you screw up, like we got that DUI victim memorial down below, shows what happens when people don't act responsibly. Right. And so, so it's a kind of a, it's more than just a collection where, where we have a purpose to try and, try and reinstill belief in America, to try and build a sense of respect and responsibility. So, so is that where your name Miracle of America comes from is because of the prosperity, the, the ability to invent the, uh, ability to be free and all of that comes from? Uh, basically, the, 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 the conscience of convention at Philadelphia, where the founding fathers hammered out the Constitution, that was referred to, the Constitutional Convention was referred to as a miracle at Philadelphia. Okay. And a large part of our display is, is, is that. So that's where part of the name came from. There, although there was miracles that happened to find certain things that tied in. Uh, for example, that one has a huge logging chain across the front of it to uh, keep people out of the main display. That's symbolic of Thomas Jefferson's quote about binding men, meaning the men of government, down from mischief by the chains of the Constitution. Uh, then the antique scales in there talk about that scale was call, always called a balance. Yeah, uh, even the spring scales, they, they have those antique ones with the brass face, they have spring balance written on them. So, so there's a, there was a, a standard that you checked every scale to make sure it was weighing correctly. And uh, the Constitution uh, uh, was a balanced form of government. And, uh, and a standard upon which we should look at any law that anyone wants to pass. Okay. So, so yeah, it's, that's part of the name. And now your museum, as, as we come into the museum, we first come into the lobby, uh, you've got, what, 40 outbuildings? 40 outbuildings, yeah, on, on about four and a half acres. And then you've got your main building. Right. And, and that, the main building, as you walk in, you see what you first started collecting with is the arrowheads. You've got right. a really nice arrowhead display as you come in. Yeah. And then you can walk down uh, the aisle. You've got lots of different artifacts. Uh, you work your way back into an early 1900s uh, display of, of maybe home items uh, with the woman of the house and, and cook, uh, different cooking utensils and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And when I say we're looking at displays, the only way I can describe what we're looking at is uh, Where's Waldo? You open up the Where's Waldo book and you're trying to find Waldo out of all these thousands of things. And so you go to his mousetrap display that he was talking about. And he's got over a hundred mouse traps there, but that's not it. He's got little mice in the corners. He's got uh, other little ads or, or papers from newspaper clippings or, or whatever else in all of these displays. So you're not looking at a hundred mouse traps. You're looking at a thousand items inside of this display case. 
Yeah. It's really quite phenomenal. Re related related items. I, I think that's where we shine, where some museums are rather sterile. I don't use that word derogatorily, but like an art museum might have a, a painting or a piece of art, a sculpture or something every 10 feet or five feet away or... or uh, and it's always at a three to five op, op, feet off the floor optimum viewing level, but ours is from ceiling to floor. There's a couple of buildings that have things hanging on the ceilings. <laughs> so it's, it's related items. I mean, you can have a cartoon. You can, you, you can have a calendar that relates to it. It's like a calendar over there. I, uh, it's got an airplane on it. Uh, it's a 1943 calendar, so it relates to... World War II, but also the building of the Alcan Highway as it happens to be on that one. So, so, and it's got a picture of a cat and a logging arch, uh, moving some logs out of the way to build a highway. Well, we've got, we've got an almost identical cat and a logging arch out in a, out in a, near our sawmill display. So, it's the things that intertwined, you know, are, I don't know how to put it, but, uh, it's, uh, the, the more the more you find, the more it's it's intertwined with something else. But but that intertwining is so complex. <laughs> I, I hate to use this word, but it's almost like a hoarder's cabinet <laughs> yeah. because there's just so much to see. I mean, he's got how many items do you have in here? Ten million. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> a lot of guys out there, but uh, somebody made a pretty close estimate. I think about three hundred forty thousand items, but there's probably more than that. I I haven't really counted them all. <laughs> I can't even imagine trying to take inventory. It would take a lifetime. Yeah. I can't imagine that in eighty years a person could collect and display as many items as what you've got. You've got everything from housewares. You've got a Harley Davidson collection that's got some. Old Harley Davidsons on up to some of the 1950s, 60s. Yeah. Uh, he's got a display room that has old Cushman motorcycles, uh, along with Vespa mo uh, motor scooters, along with uh, you had a little car back there that was quite interesting by the Flyer Company that had wood slats on the floor. It looked like a go kart, but it was actually manufactured as a as a runabout town car has two little seats in it on a on a wood crate type frame bicycle wheels and another wheel that drops down and drives uh you've probably got one of the very first snowmobiles ever made in that same room that's a, well it's a snow toboggan it's a motorized yeah. toboggan that's uh, 12 feet long, maybe. Yeah. And has a way to, to drive the toboggan. I don't even know how you steer that thing because it's there's a lot little, of ski on the bottom. There, there, there are short skis underneath the nose of the toboggan. Okay. And, and the tiller bar actually is a twist grip on it to actually add uh, the throttles powered by a Indian motorcycle engine. And uh, <clears throat> I have been in contact with the grandson of the man that built that built the first uh, factory-made snowmobiles. So he, at the time I contacted him, it was about 30 years ago now. It, it, ours was the eighth one he knew about. So, so anyhow, we got a huge winter uh, uh, winter display, including the. Tools and toys of winter—that's just unbelievable. 
So uh, now is that that that's the one that you're talking about in one of your outsheds? Well, this is the one with it's with the motorcycle section oh, okay. because it's okay. got the Indian uh, Scout motor in it, but the rest of them are out in a, in a special. Well, most of the rest of them. <laughs> yeah, what ties in? So we've got a couple of military snow machines. One of them's a very rare snow tractor. It's back in uh, the main military room. Okay. But that's not the only military room, is it? No, 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 no. Your military displays are throughout oh. this whole museum. All over. You yeah. know, uh, yeah, you've got your military equipment display, but then you also have your World War II with all the different signage from Hitler. You've got uh, Nazi flags. You've got American flags. You've got uh, lots of military American military uh, guns along with uh, other countries' guns. Yeah. I mean, when we start talking military stuff, it's everywhere, and it's kind of displays all sides, I guess, the propaganda and the yeah, the yeah. Uh, newspaper articles of what was going on at the time yeah. from both the Allied and Axis forces. It's it's yeah. quite the display. Yeah. And uh, and we show the, the suffering that goes along with it. I tell the kids when they come through on a tour, war is a very terrible, ugly, painful thing, but there's something worse than war, and that's slavery. Yes. So it's been necessary to... Uh, people have given their lives so we could be free today. You know, a, a great tribute here. There, there's a, around the country, maybe even around the world, there are specific museums that might have a bigger military collection or bigger motorcycle or auto collection than we have, but nobody has the variety that we do on public display. The Smithsonian has a lot on, in storage. Uh, that you don't even see. I've had people go through the Smithsonian that liked our displays better because they could get up close and see so much more. So we don't have any. Well, by the way, uh, we were called Smithsonian of the West, so we put that on the reader board. And a and few people that actually worked uh, at Smithsonian thought that was a neat thing. They came through the museum. Then one sorehead came and he was involved with Smithsonian in some way. And he, he demanded that we take it down. Well, we did for a while, and we got thinking, well, you know, we can't help what people call us. So, right. So if he has an issue with it, go go work on those people that call us the Smithsonian OS. So we just left it be. <laughs> well, and like I said in my intro, this museum has everything. I mean, you've got little bits of absolutely everything. Like you said, your collection of military stuff may not be as big as what the Smithsonian or the new museum in Dubois, Wyoming has, but you have such a wide selection of, of things like the, the snow, the military snow cat that you have back there. I've never seen that in any other museum. Uh, you've got, uh, I don't, I, I mean, just, it, it goes on forever. Your snow, your, your winter, uh, transport uh, part of the museum. He's got uh, Arctic Cat snow machines from, they had to have been the very first ones that, that were put out all the way on up through the 60s, but you've got probably what, 40 different snowmobile manufacturers represented yeah, in your close, display? Close to that, yeah. And I mean, now we're down to, we've got Arctic Cat, Polaris, and Yamaha you know, as far as maybe Kawasaki, as far as the snow machine manufacturers now, 
But back then you had 40 different people manufacturing snowmobiles in the 60s, 70s. Uh, those companies are all out of business now, but they must have prospered enough to be able to make a lot of machines uh, to put out. And they're all on display. You've got like six or seven big snowcat, uh, the, the big passenger type yeah. uh, out there. You've got lots of different track systems for ones that run on, on a wheel system uh, that you could just put on a Model T on up to ones that are air-powered. Yeah, yeah. And I the air-powered ones are just really intriguing to me. Mostly those were built for flat country, like back in the, back in the mid, uh, like the eastern, uh, northern, northeastern states. But, but uh, two of our vehicles were owned, pre-owned, actually more than that, but the two we're talking about were owned by Glacier National Park. And one was built by their maintenance shop in 1940, I think it was, and that was replaced in 1952 by the Tucker Snowcat. And uh, we have all the, uh, when we bought that, we got all the paperwork go with it, including the sales brochure that the company from Medford, Oregon that made the Tucker sent to the park trying to get them to invest in it. And wow. so we have that, we have the... Uh, Delivery notes uh, that it was going to be delivered. We got to some repair parts things and you know It's neat to have that provenance uh, to, and, and just like any vehicle we like to have uh, the correct year license plate on it. We like to have the uh, <clears throat> Manual the motor manual that came with it. Uh, maybe the some advertising that out of a magazine, you know as maybe some accessories. I, I, I really love the accessories sometimes more than, than than the parent vehicle because they're so unique. And uh, just like with the Model T Fords, we have uh, we have 10 complete Model T Fords. And uh, I think there are probably 10,000 accessories that everyone trying to improve on, on Henry Ford's Model T. But I mean, you know, that lasted from 1909 through 27. So there were right. that many years of all these accessories. And and, and the other day I I picked up a, a, a motor that had been used on a buzzsaw. And they'd, they'd, uh, they had some accessories on there. That, and even one homemade part on a buzzsaw to, to, to this, uh, governor to slow the engine down. It was very unique. I've, Taking a picture of that so I can show it to the Ford uh, Model D Ford Club because it's so unique. I mean, you know, this free enterprise uh, breeds uh, in, uh, breeds uh, invention, and and so I don't think America needs to apologize to anybody. Uh, other than the dark side, uh, those there's unfortunate parts of history need to. I think some people need to forgive and and uh, and look forward instead of looking at the past as far as that sort of thing goes. But there's other opinions too. So, but uh, not everyone will love some of our messages. I had a guy from uh, from Russia. He he claimed to be a communist, and he went through here, and he really liked our museum. But he says I disagree with your with your patriotic displays about America. <laughs> so we discussed that a bit. Uh, and 
one of the displays says that uh, many people have come, have risked their lives escaping uh, Soviet-controlled countries to come to America for freedom. He only answer he says was "Yeah, but." <laughs> he had no he had no answer for that uh, and and then I, one of them said uh, people have come to America with only uh, very little possessions and by hard work and, and ingenuity have become millionaires yeah but <laughs> that's all he could say but he still liked the museum so you know you can't you know, whichever way you face you got your back on somebody you don't try and offend but you, you, you show history. Right. It's, and history is exactly what it is. Yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah. you know, like you said, the dark side, there's a dark side to everything. And you can't sugarcoat everything, but you shouldn't destroy where you came from either. All of us in our lives have made mistakes. Yeah. And should we face those mistakes, admit to those mistakes, and say we learn from those mistakes, or should we try and bury them? Right. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, it's just like life. But your museum does a very nice uh, display of, of the patriotic side of things. And it also uh, takes you through the evolution of so many of the, of the products that, that are, have been manufactured. I mean, yeah. you've got a tractor display out there that is absolutely phenomenal. You've got the walking tractors, which are basically like a rototiller with uh, with different attachments on the front. You've got yeah. lots of different attachments from grass cutting to a brush clearing to a cultivating. And those were kind of replacing the horse-drawn plow, which you've got several uh, horse-drawn equipment pieces out there. Yeah. And then you come on up into the modern tractor with, or, or semi-modern. I mean, you don't have the night the, the 2002 model, but you've got the 1950 model right. that has the cultivators on it, and, and you can see the evolution of of how these things have progressed through the years very very clearly. Yeah. So we do try and demonstrate a lot of those things. Uh, an annual event. Uh, I think we. Have, I think it was about our thirty-third or thirty-fourth annual Live History Days, two-day celebration, always the third weekend in July, and where we give rides on a lot of things, operate things, and oh, really? you know, invite exhibitors into, as long as it has to do with a, a past trade or hobby, and uh, and then we've started this coming winter. Will be, uh, second Saturday in January will be our second Winterfest. First one was this year and we had such good attendance and interest. Guests, guests, snowmobilers brought their vintage machines and oh, really? along with ours and we gave rides uh, all day long and and so we'll make that an annual event. I've already got promises of people who said they'd come and help. So do most of your, does most of your equipment run? I would say uh, well, it should if I had enough manpower to run it, but but uh, you can only work on so many vehicles in a day, you know. We try, yeah. I would say probably half of them have, or more than that, have been driven in here, but some of them haven't been run for a long time. Well, and that's hard on a machine. That you should really start something at least annually, if not if not more. You got to air up the tires and 
work the brakes. Some of them still have mechanical brakes as they originally came out with. And if they've got hydraulic brakes, you really need to pump those every once in a while. Otherwise, the, the brake fluid will gel up and, and uh, plug your lines and stuff. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, upkeep and maintenance that needs to be done. Well, and just fuel. Fuel doesn't last more than about a year in a vehicle no. without uh, verithaning, and, and then that means you've got to clean out your gas tanks and yeah. all of that stuff on a yeah. regular basis, too. We, we use premium non-ethanol gas and everything. I don't know how long we'll be able to get that. But, uh, yeah, if, if you were to use something daily, you could get by with the ethanol crap. But right. But if you're going to leave it sit for six months, you can't run it on a regular basis. You don't want to put ethanol gas in anything. <clears throat> so then the batteries, if it isn't fuel or gas or tires, it's batteries. <laughs> right. And, and they, they, the environmentalists have caused a lot of this stuff to not be as good a quality as it used to be. So... So and we end up with a lot more wasteful society. Something wears out, well, you throw it away. Whereas before, you could re rejuvenate a battery or you could recycle things and or repair things. So, you know, free, free freedom, uh, along with, that's dependent on responsibility. And, uh, and that's always been the best way. Now, your museum is also very interactive. You have little signs that say, all over the place, that say, enjoy, do not destroy. So these items are all ones like, you've got several music machines and an old uh, motorcycle race video machine from probably 1970, maybe even probably. the 60s. Probably, yeah. uh, and some of these music machines, uh, player piano and... and uh, Another music machine that you've got that plays a fiddle or a violin and and uh, piano yeah. keys, and some of that type of stuff. You can drop your quarter in. You can watch the machine work. Yeah. Uh, you can play the little video game. You've got a hel uh, two helicopters out there that uh, only one that they can sit in and play the okay. But they love they can sit. And what's exciting is you see a a Vietnam vet with his either his, his uh, child or a grandchild sitting in there and then just, just uh, sitting in there together. They may sit in there a half hour. And he's maybe sharing some things that he never talked about before. You see, maybe uh, with PTSD or something like that, maybe that's the reason, or maybe he just never had occasion. The, the helicopter maybe reminds him about some things he can share that. So it's we call it intergenerational bonding. That's that's a beautiful thing here. One you mentioned the games. We had a shooting gallery and another game we had up near the front here, and we found that the kids would gravitate to those, and the adults would start going down the museum. We took them out. We want families to stay together, and uh, really neat. Almost every day we see some. But especially yesterday, there was a grand, grandfather going around with the kids and explaining things. And, and one was a little, real little kid. And of course, we've got a fire truck out there. There's two green ovals on it. That's a symbol that you can interact with it. So he says, what, do you, what is this vehicle called? 
a little kid, you know, he, uh -huh. he probably never said fire truck before, but he learned, learned, learned what that vehicle was. So I pointed out to make sure they didn't miss a little green oval on the floorboard. There's a button there. So, so grandfather pointed that out to him. He said, push on it real hard. And, and when the siren went off, boy, he was, that was exciting for little kids. So, so it's a, it's something, not every museum uh, is going to have some of the other things. I've, I've made some various bells and, and devices, and they can get in a UFO. I built uh, three UFOs. One of them we have an appraised. One of them I built so people can go up in it, and they can look out the viewports out of the cupola, and it, look, it looks just like your typical flying saucer. Your flying saucer display is awesome. <laughs> yeah, so. I don't, you know, it's all, it's all, uh, what do I want to say, make believe or whatever. But the way you've got it set up out there <laughs> is a really fun place for kids. Yeah. And not only that, you've got uh, some different musical instrument type things. You've got one that you drop the golf ball in at the top, and there's little round plates, and that golf ball bounces around and hits all the. Uh, round plates and makes different tones as it's going yeah, down. Yeah. And then you've got your little uh, wooden uh, handles that you can pound on different uh, yeah, bells. bells and some of that. And, and yeah, you've got th yeah. that area for the kids is, is really cool. Yeah, the title of that is Ring Out Wild Bells. And one of my favorite pictures is a is a friend of mine with his little, little child and he's actually was a yeah, I think it was a child. Uh, and I've seen it happen with grandchildren too, but he's he's holding and she's got the gong real little and she's uh, hitting on a bell. So, you know, that's it's neat to see. I mean, even a babe in arms can enjoy it when they realize they're responsible for making the noise. It really gets a big smile and big wide open eyes on, on something like that. When you were talking about the, the fire engine siren back in your military display, you've got another siren back there that's a, a bomb alarm siren or whatever. Yeah, air raid. Air raid siren. That, there you go. And you can hand crank that thing. And, and the whole time I've been walking through the museum, I've been listening to the <laughs> air raid siren go off and, and also the fire engine siren. But uh, you've got uh, back in, the, in the, another area that you have a schoolyard You've got a tether ball out there. Me and the grandson had a little tether ball game going, oh, yeah. uh, and you know, I mean, just all the way through. There's all kinds of interactive little, like you said, green signs, and and you're supposed to enjoy while you're here. Yeah, yeah. And so, what's neat? Uh, we see uh, kids bringing in their children who came through themselves as children. But you see, in 36 years, there's plenty of time for another generation to start. Oh, so, yeah. So we've got the repeat generations coming through. So. <clears throat> and right now where we're sitting and talking is quite an interesting room, too. You've got a 1950s uh, soda fountain set up with all of the old cups, the old bar stools uh, that are attached to the floor and red covering. Uh, you've got a... Uh, Mannequin dressed in it. I think if I remember right, it said the attire of uh, Glacier Mountain, uh, Glacier, Glacier Park. National Park uh, attire Glacier, for serving. Yeah, yeah. 
And it was from what, 1914? 20, to, 20, 20 to and 40. We, we got it from the woman that was a waitress there in the 20s. Okay. And and the fountain itself, most people think of a 50s era, but that fountain was made in 1925. Okay. And it was a neighboring town about 10 miles south of here, so... Uh, then, then the bar stools are not, yeah, soda bar stools. We we got an antique store, the bases. Then we did the tops and the upholstery ourselves. Okay. So, and then in this room also, you've got a remote control airplane. You've got an old uh, camera that folds. You know, the old like nineteen hundreds camera that had the. The fold out and it's yeah. is quite big. Yellows, you've got two yeah. you got a bicycle built for two with a baby seat on the back, so I guess that's a bicycle built for three. Three, yeah. You've got another uh old I'm assuming that's a forties or fifties yeah, vintage 40s. bicycle with Coke bottles in the front and the little basket. It's got the little dinger bell and a and a mirror on it. And then you've got a China display. I'm I don't know what the China uh, that, is, that's, that's antique. It's made in Austria, but, but okay. it shows the Dutch scenes. But you, you you missed the part of the one bicycle. It's brought a uh, playing card uh, uh, oh. close pinned to the strut of the fender. So so when he wrote it, the the playing card would would make a noise like a motor. And that that actually made you go faster, right? Well, it did because I remember <laughs> my bicycle going much faster when I did that as a kid. I did not catch the clothespin. And the and the playing card, but yeah, we used to do that all the time when we were kids. And then you've got a camera display that has uh, several different cameras. It looks like from the twenties and thirties. Yeah, very historic. Some are very historic uh, to the area, uh, and uh, some of them were uh, were owned by Heilman, who did a lot of photography for Glacier National Park and the Northern uh, Great Northern Railway. And one of them was uh, Schnitzmeyer, uh, very prominent to this area back in the t 19 teens, but then he took a job for Northern Pacific Railway, Railroad and was their official photographer. So we got his camera and, and the black uh, black hood that he put over his head to right. all out the light. And, and uh, so we got some pretty rare stuff. And then a Barbie display, except I don't know if those are Barbies. They're missing. Well, they're, missing they're all Barbies, but but there's something special about that display. Is each one is dressed in a different year to celebrate the hundredth uh, anniversary of Montana's statehood. Okay. And a woman uh, dressed those using some of the material was from her mother's and grandmother's clothes, and she was an elderly lady at the time she did it. And so she entered it in the Sanders County Fair and took grand prize. Oh. But then she didn't know what to do with it. And so she wondered if we wanted it. So we thought that the his, historical value was worth something. It isn't the Barbie itself, but... Lot the evolution of, of clothing. A lot of little girls like still like to, to see it. And then you've got Montana maps and, and other uh, displays in here, along with trophy animals. You've got a full-mounted wolf, you've got a moose on the wall, you've got a bear, a bear trap, and then we come on around to where there's an Indian that looks like he's coming out of the wall on a, on a horse, 
and he's shooting a buffalo that is the biggest buffalo known to have been in Montana. Right. And right. it said, I think, that it weighed 2,800 pounds, and yeah. they got 1,200 pounds of meat out of the thing. Yeah. Now that's, we a, did. that's a big animal. Yeah, yeah. Now, we can't, we we don't have the proof that it was the biggest one, but at, at the time the, the uh, hunter took it, he was told that was the largest one. But, you know, there could have been bigger. But, but still, it makes a nice mural diorama. Oh, yes. And and along with that, we have the utensils that would have been made using buffalo parts. There's another way of hunting buffalo. They didn't have a horse. There's a, there's a coyote pelt there that they could skin a coyote, and they'd drape it over their back and crouch down real low and sneak up on a buffalo. Uh, we've got things from Hudson Bay Trading Company. And and then we also have the golden eagle sitting on a crag oh, that's up above right. the uh, above the site there, waiting for the hunt to end so they can get down and get some scraps or entrails at the you know once once the uh, the mighty hunter killed the buffalo he could go sit around the campfire then and telling war and hunting stories and smoking a peace pipe and or pipes and <laughs> the women would go to work <coughs> right they, they, they uh, the women had to skin and flesh and make jerky and and make the glue from boiling down the hooves and that you know so so anyhow it's a, it's a pretty complete display when you look at it uh, overall we've got buffalo over the top of the case there we also got buffalo uh, sharps heavy barreled sharps right. where where normally the white man used the sharps, uh, although when the Indians were able to trade for rifles, that that was uh, they could do a longer range than their bow and arrows could. So anyhow, we cover about the whole gamut, I think, of of, of history up. I would say through the end of the '60s, maybe some of it even into the '70s, but but. Uh, We've got some original art stuff. We've got some original art of Shorty Shope, five pieces, and, and he was hired by the Highway Commission to make their Highway Commission maps from 1934 through 47. Wow. Although there was an exception during the war years, 42 to 46, they didn't print maps because of the paper shortage during World War II. But, but anyhow, it was very... We're very honored to be able to procure that collection. It wasn't donated, but they they made it uh, about half half of a praise value price for us. So <clears throat> some things are donated for tax write-off. Some things are donated just because people would like others to see them on display, or some people are on their way to the dump and and stop by and wonder if there's anything in their load we'd like and. So I'd say all of the above, uh, you know. There's a few things we don't take anymore, but... but uh, Now, most of what we were just talking about for the last five minutes or so is all in one room that still has room for some benches or seats to sit down on, a table that has some books on it, and the table that we're sitting at. So this room has all of that type of items in it, and this is just one room of many, many, many others. Yeah. Uh, when you go out the to the courtyard or to the back area or whatever, you've got another what 
40 buildings or so. We've got a blacksmith display that has blacksmith tools in it. We've got a railroad display that has uh, all kinds of the railroading equipment. We've got a, a toy area that has the old erector sets, old dolls, pogo sticks, uh, just all the toys that, that I played with when I was a kid, and I'm sure a lot of them that my grandparents played with when they yeah. were kids. Uh, you've got a schoolhouse that has books in it, uh, a press, uh, a display, uh, kind of a natural history display in the back corner that has beehives and several things like that. Uh, you've got old automobiles out there. You've got uh, the ship. You've got the Paul Bunyan out there. Yeah. Tell me about the Paul Bunyan. Well, that was built in 1926 at Summers, which is a head end of Flathead Lake. Uh, the Summers Lumber Company was owned by Great Northern Railway, and they needed lumber for not only railroad trestles, but uh, bridges uh, or snow, snow shed uh, coverings so the snow slides wouldn't wipe out their track up in Glacier. But they, they needed the railroad ties. And so the, the, the way to, best way to move logs back then was to get them down to the lake. And then they would make a, a boom or raft of logs. They would chain all the boundary logs around the outside edge of the pile or the grouping together. And then they'd hook onto a boat. Well, the steamboats, were uh, were pretty powerful, but they, this was built more powerful than they. And uh, steamboats, they were getting uh, pretty old. I've got the original paperwork, original plans and everything for the Paul Bunyan boat. Right, and that's all displayed on the board out there. And you? so so uh, that was used from 1926 through the 40s. I believe it was uh, hauled or taken out of the lake in, in 50 or 51. And then for years it set up south of Lakeside along overlooking Flathead Lake and a guy built a house on the back of it. When we obtained it, we had to take that house off and try and restore it back to original so people could now go up on it again. It has the original wheel uh, in the wheelhouse and, and the telegraph, which was a metal column with controls on it, which uh, regulated the engine speed and the direction. If they if they wanted to reverse the boat, you couldn't turn a, like a boat motor, you could maybe turn around it. They reverse the, the direction of the of the engine. There's some engines you could do that. Okay. And uh, and so so anyhow uh <clears throat> that's that's uh, that's been a good attraction. The kids the, what we had one little kid, I think he was a bit autistic but uh, Mother used to bring him in all the time for his birthday. It was his, he had dressed in his pirate outfit and his wooden sword, and <laughs> that was his pirate ship. So I haven't seen him for a couple of years, so I don't know whether he grew out of it or if they moved away, but but it brought a lot of interest. Uh, you know, some people can walk right by something and not be interested, but the next person come along and they're really interested. So it's, the diversity here is what really is a real asset to us because if you don't find something in here like you said up front you're, you're not living <laughs> yeah yeah something that, that from your childhood or whatever you you've not had much of a life because it is it is totally amazing and and the paul bunyan is a lot of fun i mean you've got it opened up to where you can walk into the bottom part 
go on up on the deck, walk around the deck, step inside the uh, captain's room for the steering wheel and, and all of that kind of stuff. And then when you come back down, you walk into another room that has, okay, I'm going to throw a number out. 75, 100, 150 outboard motors. I think 100, uh, 100. I think I counted them a couple of weeks ago because the guys offered me a few more and I wanted to see what we had. <laughs> so, okay, so you've got 100 outboard motors and these outboard motors are ones that had to have been like 1900 on up through yeah, yeah, 1970. That one, they just had a little knob on a flywheel and you, you spun it. You had the spark and the throttle right. Uh, and and if you didn't have this right, that could kick back and that could break your wrist. Wow! So that and and so then after that, they they put a little notch in the wheel. You wrap a rope around it, and it was rope start. But the rope would come off after you got it spinning. So so a lot of people have a recoil start on the later motors, where you you pull a handle. And it gets it spinning, and then it, and then it winds back in. That's a recoil start. That's not really, like what we have on modern lawnmowers. Yeah, that's not really a, a rope start. Because rope start, you got to hold on tight because you spun that thing, and the rope went went kind of flinging out there. If you weren't holding on tight, you could lose your lose your your starting motor out or starting rope out in the lake. <laughs> so I've got a cartoon about that or a painting out there so we've got everything relating to water from antique wolf, wolf swimming suits uh yes that was cool too and uh fishing gear duck hunting we've got a duck hunting little boat and a mural diorama with all kinds of decoys and stuffed waterfowl shotguns shell boxes gun cleaning rod or uh, an oil and i mean you got to have the related things right and then some some early uh, hunting licenses from back in the day, 20s or older. So all these related things. Same with the fishing gear. You got to have you got to have creels. You got to have your fishing boots, the poles. You know your fishing hat with the flies stuck in the hat band. Uh, Are you guys beginning to get the idea <laughs> of what this collection is and why? Why I say this is my absolute favorite museum of all the museums. Uh, and, and it's here in Polson, Montana, which is what we're, we're 45 miles north of Missoula. If you're driving out Interstate 90 and you turn at Missoula, come on up. Flathead Lake's beautiful. Uh, the Mission Mountain Range just is where you sit. It's, it's south of uh, uh, Flathead Lake. To me, is one of the prettiest mountain ranges in the nation. I love driving up Highway 93 and, and following the Mission Mountain Range. Uh, everybody likes to brag about our Wyoming Teton Mountains, and the Tetons are cool, but the Mission is is my favorite. Yeah, and I grew up every day, uh, my childhood, right, just right, looking at them. So, and I've been over to Switzerland, and you know, and and I don't think the Swiss Alps have anything over us. So, and your valley here is beautiful. I mean, yeah. it's just it's it's such a nice drive. And to come up here and see this museum is so worthwhile. And, and then you've got, you've got uh, we're right on 93, and we've got very good access, two access points, and, and the motorhomes have got plenty of room to pull in. 
a lot of motorcyclists uh, just north of us then about uh, about an hour and 15 minutes or so is the entrance to Glacier National Park right so so they can go along the uh, east side of, of Flathead Lake which is Highway 35 a little narrower but a little more direct to Glacier Park or they can stay on 93 go through the town of Polson across the bridge there where the where the Flathead Lake uh, used to be called the Ponderay River but most people call it the Flathead River but uh, anyhow and then they head up 93 which is a little wider highway and a little better view of the lake up through Kalispell, and, and then you either go to Whitefish, which is a ski, good ski area, or uh, or go on over to the park and uh, and through Glacier. So we're we're in a prime location. We couldn't ask for, but I wouldn't trade our property here. I'd like to wish it was bigger, but I wouldn't trade our site for any site in in the county. Because it's it's just in view of, of Highway 93, which is a divided highway at this point, but it's got the perfect perfect exits. And uh, if you miss the first one, there's the second one right by the Walmart and the traffic light. And uh, otherwise, uh, yeah, we're open every day, you know, uh, nine to five. Uh, a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people, I don't know, they're running on Pacific time. They come. 15 minutes before we're ready to close and we want to see this museum. <laughs> Doug, it puts us in a bad spot because sometimes we've got a meeting to go to or want to get a project we want to work on and they can't see it. So I'm saying, well, we heard about it and we'll, we'll, pay, we'll pay the full price just to take 15 minutes to go through. 15 minutes doesn't, <laughs> doesn't take you through the first five displays. <laughs> I, I mean, you'd have to run in order to get through it in an hour just yeah. about. So we've been here, I think, three and a half hours going through the displays. Again, I've been here probably six or seven times. I'm sure I'll be here another six or seven times. Every time I come through, I see so many things that uh, I didn't see before. <clears throat> but uh, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. And you guys have a website. Right, and a YouTube site. Oh, tell us about your YouTube channel. Okay, all you got to do is Google our name, Miracle of America Museum. And then instantly, the top bar has a YouTube button on it. And we have about 50 short videos. Uh, they're all about, I would say, from three to seven minutes long, except for one video is 33 minutes long, and I tell the story of the museum. But uh, a lot of them are patriotic. Some are just fun. Some are whimsical. A lot of our sculptures are whimsical, so you got to have fun in life. Oh, know? yeah. So, <clears throat> and then, uh, I don't know, other than a website, we're on, on Facebook, too. Okay. Uh, but Facebook is kind of, I don't know, I think they kind of, I don't know what they're doing, shadow banning us or what. I'm not getting the response on Facebook we're used to. But we are patriotic, and... and and I don't know that Patri that Facebook is. Uh, so, you know, there's always that. Uh, like I say, whatever way you stand, you got your back on somebody. Can't help it. <laughs> so you do what you do. Yeah. yeah. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time today, Gil, and, and talking with me. And like I said, 
there's no way that I could even possibly begin to do this museum justice in this podcast. My thing is, get your butt out here and see it. <laughs> yeah. It's just, there is so much here. And and like we said, there's so much to do in the area also. Yeah. So, I always finish out my podcast by saying, the world is full of wonder. And this museum, uh, you need to get out and explore. You need to come see this. The things that he portrays, the miracle of America, uh, the inventions that have happened here are all on display. And Gil's just a fun guy to talk to. When you come in here, he's the one that was sitting at the desk when we got here. So he is 100% actively involved in this thing. So come on up, see the museum, and everybody have an absolutely wonder-filled day. All the road and go. Where am I to go, meet Johnny? Where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go?